for the opening prayer. We praise you, Lord God, and we lift the name of your Son. We stand in your presence, drawn here by your Holy Spirit that empowers us to share your good news, to tell the story of your Son and your kingdom, and to rejoice in his life freely given. We are grateful that you have already moved past our sin, but we still confess that we have fallen far short of what you created us to be. And so we ask that you empower us and guide us to walk by faith as those who are forgiven. We ask your blessing to be upon us this worship hour and upon the hearing of your word. We give you our hearts and minds. We open the gates to our lives and shout, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Bless his name, O Lord. May Jesus Christ be praised. May the prayer he taught us be a blessing in our lives. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Matthew chapter 21, verses 6 through 11. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt. Yeah, there was a donkey and the foal of of the donkey. Jesus didn't ride on them at the same time, by the way. Okay, (laughs) He rode into the city riding the colt, but he probably rode the donkey from the Mount of Olives. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. 
It was a great day. Jesus was riding a donkey's colt into the city of Jerusalem. Admirers waved palm branches. They laid their coats on the road before him. Everyone was excited. And the people shouted, Hosanna! Hosanna to the son of David! Well, Hosanna is an interesting Hebrew word. Do you know what it means? Literally, it means, Lord, save us. Lord, save us. It's the kind of greeting people might shout to soldiers who liberate a town from occupation. In recent history, this has happened. In the 20th century, as the Allied soldiers liberated Europe during World War II, Entire towns, town after town, came out to greet the liberating soldiers. During Desert Storm, 1990, I remember this. I wasn't there, but I remember watching the Kuwaitis crying out in happiness as they were freed from the Iraqi oppressors. Lord, save us. That's what people say who need to be saved. It's what people shout to someone they trust. And over the centuries, Hosanna became a word of praise, like hallelujah. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. That's what that means. Did the people of Jerusalem know they were calling for their freedom and, and salvation? Or were they just honoring the popular rabbi with a common salutation. Scripture isn't definitive, but in any case, the people welcomed Jesus. They hailed him. They were praising him. Some of the people knew that Jesus was more than just a celebrity. They called out, Hosanna to the son of David. David was the patriarch of the royal dynasty of Judea. For 400 years after David ruled, every king in Judea was considered to be a son of David. Even in times of occupation, the prophecies pointed toward a new Davidic king to rise to the throne. He was called the Messiah. And here was Jesus the rabbi from Nazareth who had taught daily about God's kingdom. The crowd was singing, Blessed be the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This was the Davidic king riding into the city to take control, not on a war horse like a general, but on a donkey, as prophesied in the book of Zechariah. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We know what happened. The Pharisees were indignant. The Pharisees were the religious rulers. And they urged Jesus to silence the crowd. To the Pharisees, the people were out of control, and surely they thought Jesus didn't want the people to start a rebellion. In Matthew's account, 
the Pharisees called the people who were singing praises to Jesus children. Yeah, the Pharisees called them children. No doubt there were children in the crowd, but the Pharisees were simply talking down to the followers of Jesus as if they were childish. They had childish enthusiasm. They didn't know what they were saying. They didn't know what they were doing. But Jesus refused to rein in any of the praises. I like the account, the way it was written in Luke chapter 9, verses 39 and 40. What some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, if they had kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. Now, this is very metaphorical, of course. The rocks aren't actually going to start talking. Well, you never know with Jesus. If the Pharisees had succeeded in shutting up the people, maybe those rocks would have started shouting. Maybe the rocks themselves would have shouted out, Hosanna to the king of David the son of David, or maybe Jesus was recalling another prophecy by the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk was berating, scolding. That's a fancy word for scolding. He was scolding the proud and the greedy leaders in his culture hundreds of years before Christ walked this earth. He said, you have plotted the ruin of many people shaming your own house and forfeiting your life, the stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk was shaming the leaders of Israel in his day, yet he provided a positive contrast See, he is puffed up. That's the religious leaders we was talking to. His de desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by faith. This is the heart of the gospel message found hundreds of years before Christ walked this earth. It was a theme developed by the Apostle Paul and all the disciples. It was the core teaching of Jesus. The just will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. The Pharisees were arrogant, greedy, corrupt. They were puffed up with their own pride in their own pious traditions. The people, on the other hand, they displayed simple faith. They called out to the Messiah to save them. Hosanna! Lord, save us. Jesus had come to Jerusalem for the last time. As usual, he entered the temple courts to teach. The chief priests and the elders of the people came to him and challenged his authority. They asked him, Who gave you the right to overturn the tables of the money changers and to heal the lame and the blind? And one of his responses to this arrogant challenge was the parable of the tenants. 
This is one of the two times that Jesus overturned money changers in the temple. He did it right at the beginning of his ministry. He did it again right before he was arrested. And Jesus responded to those Pharisees with this parable. But when the tenants saw the son, I think I'm a little ahead of myself. Let's talk about this parable. I'll read it. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. In this parable, a landowner had rented his vineyard to tenants. They refused to pay their rent. One messenger after another was sent to collect rebellious tenants, beat each one. Finally, the owner sent his own son. The owner assumed that his son would command the respect of the tenants. But his son's presence served only to incite the tenants to greater violence. And Jesus concluded the parable by saying, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Considering the response from Jesus and the immediate situation that Jesus was responding to, the Jewish leaders knew that Jesus was talking about them. They had harassed him throughout his ministry. They were supposed to care for the people of Israel. But they did not care for the people. They did not produce the fruit of repentance or true obedience. And as a result, Jesus discredited their leadership. In in full hearing of all the people. I wouldn't be surprised if Jesus was looking around at stones as he quoted next from Psalm 118. Jesus said, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, which is the cornerstone of a building? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces by on but he on whom it falls will be crushed the temple complex at this time was undergoing a major renovation it had been going on for actually a couple of decades a lengthy rebuilding project the stonemasons were likely moving about dressing finishing various stones for placement As Jesus often did, he used his real-life surroundings to make a point. And that this quotation from Psalm 118 summed up his whole ministry. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The psalmist was speaking of a surprising situation in which 
a stone that the builders saw as being flawed ended up becoming the most prominent stone in the structure. Jesus was saying he himself is the stone, the cornerstone of the church. Church is made up of the people. He himself is the cornerstone. But he wasn't the kind of Messiah the the leaders were looking for. Some of the religious leaders had high hopes early on. But wait a minute. Who did Jesus spend most of his time with? The sinners? The sick? The religious leaders felt that Jesus never gave them enough respect. And so the religious leaders of Israel rejected Jesus. But there was a surprise coming. There was a surprise was that their rejection created the very situation that made Jesus the cornerstone. His crucifixion appeared to be a tragic event. Instead, it turned out to be a truly marvelous outcome. The next few days for Jesus must have been deeply stirring for him. You think? In the garden... His sweat was like drops of blood pouring out of his heart. In just a short time, he was to be betrayed, arrested, only hours away from being crucified and buried. And as he was sweating so intensely, so profusely, Jesus had these words to say. My father... If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Wow. This is a powerful lesson about prayer from Jesus just hours before his arrest and crucifixion. Yet many Christians have the idea that they can make prayer work if they pray the right way or if they pray hard enough, if they demand it from God. The underlying belief from too many Christians seems to be, how can I get God to do what I want? But the words of Jesus in Gethsemane show us the real essence of prayer. Not my will, but your will be done. Prayer is a conversation. It's a meeting of the minds. And even more than that, it's a meeting of the wills. We can and we should voice our desires to God. That's exactly what Jesus did in the garden. He asked for a way out. But like Jesus, we don't stay there. God cares about our needs, our wants, and he often provides what we ask. And he knows our needs better than we know our own needs. But as with Jesus, God often has a bigger picture. He has a bigger plan for us to accomplish. We can say what we want. But like Jesus, we need to listen for what God wants. See, prayer doesn't have a magic formula. Nowhere 
in the Bible did Christ ever say, you don't have because you don't have enough faith? The power of prayer comes from God alone, not from any prayer technique. Scripture teaches us that faith leads to answered prayer, but faith is being open to the power of God. Faith is still God's power. Faith is not my power. Faith is not your power. Faith is not my will. By faith, I choose to follow God's will. <clears throat> Incidentally, I'm going to do a, a, a series of sermons defining what God's will is <clears throat> very soon. If you don't realize it, you already know two-thirds of God's will for your life. The only part you're missing is one-third. In the garden, Jesus knew that the cup of suffering was at his lips. It was ready to be tasted. Any of us would tremble at the physical pain involved. Jesus wasn't the only one to be crucified. That was the routine way the criminals were killed in that day. Very brutal. Yet for sure any of us would tremble at the pain. But Jesus faced something far greater. Jesus faced the spiritual weight of the world's sin and the resulting separation from his holy, beloved Father. It's understandable that Jesus would ask for a way out. If it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Of course. If there was a way out, he was asking his Father, let me out of it. And then he prayed to his loving Father, just as he taught his disciples how to pray, just as we prayed a few moments ago. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. <clears throat> Holy is an interesting word. It's related to the word whole. I like to say it's related to the word whole. W-H-O-L-E. So this is a Pastor Michael uh, concept. How can holy be related to W-H-O-L-E? We are not whole. We lack something. We are under construction. Something is missing. And we wander this world in search of that missing ingredient that will make us W-H-O-L-E. will make us whole. God has what we lack. He is whole. He is holy. And as we catch, catch a glimpse of his perfection, we realize that only through connection with, with him can we be made whole. And yet, like Isaiah the prophet, we grieve over our own unworthiness. But our holy God is a loving God, and he sent his son to die for our sins so that we can have what we lack, which is forgiveness 
and a veil of righteousness that allows us to approach him. One individual person at a time. Yes, this is not a group think event. We come to God one person at a time. Our recognition of God's holiness makes us exalt him with great praise, but it also makes us bow in confession before him. He is worthy. We are not. And so we line the streets as the holy Son of God approaches. And we sing his praises. We sing out Hosanna. God, save us. Lord, save us. But the Son of God doesn't ride a mighty stallion. He rides a donkey. He's not dressed in fine clothes. He's dressed like you and me. He's one of us. The incarnation. He won't turn away as I approach him. He won't sneer at the stains on my clothes. Jesus won't mock my errors in judgment. He knows how he made us. And so I cry, Hosanna, Lord, save me. I pull off my tattered shirt and I lay it at his feet. It's unworthy. I'm unworthy. But I know Jesus wants to see that cloak on the ground. And I know God's son wants me. He wants you. And that's the moment when he meets me. His gaze meets mine. And he burns away my darkness. He fills my soul with light. My soul is touched as he assures me that his death will make me clean. And white robed, as all Christians are symbolically, we join the multitude before God's throne. The final victory has been won. The king ascends his throne, and I see him, and the crowd erupts with one accord in a word of praise, hallelujah, praise to our God. We are the bride. What a marvelous metaphor. The church is the bride of Christ. We, the multitude of believers, look at our white robes, and we understand he has clothed us in white robes, once unworthy of God's holiness, we are now invited into his family around his table where he asks us to share in a banquet with him. This is a banquet that will last for eternity. And trust me, you're not going to be stuck on a cloud playing a harp. There's a big universe out there. God's got plans for us, plans. We can't comprehend what he has in store for his bride. Hallelujah. We sing again, praising not only out of awe and respect, but also out of deep love. He speaks and we listen. He shares with us the wonders of creation. We see the world with new eyes. That's right. As you grow in wisdom, through the power of God's Holy Spirit, you will see the world with new eyes. You will see the world differently. God will share his 
deep wisdom with you. God will help you to understand mysteries that those who aren't part of his family will never understand. And we bask in his presence. He asks us to speak, and we do. Miraculously, our feeble words become confident in his presence. Jesus, who turned the water into wine, he has turned our stutters, our inability to speak, into praise. He has turned us into something that is beyond anything we could have ever imagined, beyond anything we could ever think. It is great to be with God. It is wonderful to be with our Savior. Indeed, we have everything through God's only begotten Son who gave everything for us. And so we say amen. You know what amen means, right? So be it. Yes, let it be, Lord, as you want it to be. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. We hear your word. We commit ourselves to obey what it says. Yeah, we're doing this a little bit different. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we partake of what Jesus did we partake of Jesus in that we receive the blessing of his love and we acknowledge the saving sacrifice that he made on the cross. You may have heard me say this before, Jesus never intended for us to be spectators. He never never intended for us to participate in a viewing event. This is not a hockey game or a baseball game being members in the family of God. Christianity is a supper where the faithful are invited to come and dine. We are a group of believers with a common Savior as we Partake of communion. Let us remember Christ's suffering on our behalf. Let us remember our covenant relationship with him and each other in this body of believers we call the church, the ecclesia. The word in the Greek means those who are called out. The ecclesia, the church, means those people who have been called out of the world into citizenship in the family of God. In our small assembly of believers, we take communion using grape juice. We could use wine. The symbolism is what's important. The symbolism is that the fruit of the vine illustrates Jesus as the source of life, the source of victory, the source over death. When I'm talking death, I mean eternal death, not just death in, this, in a physical sense. 
Jesus said in John chapter 15, I am the true vine. He indeed is the true source of life. How do we get wine or juice out of a grape? We crush the grape. That's how it works. What a fitting metaphor. Jesus was literally crushed. His flesh was torn apart, ripped out. His blood was spilled out. From many places on his body. When we partake of communion, we remember how Jesus was crushed. When we drink of the fruit of the vine, we remember how much Jesus suffered for us. Sister Lauren, would you? The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks. Let's give thanks. Heavenly Father, as we think of the sacrifice of your son, his body on the cross, crushed. He understood exactly what was going on, yet he willingly gave himself so that your will would be done in his life. And now he has taught us to follow suit, to make your will be done in our lives as well. Thank you, Lord God, for that willing sacrifice of your son. We pray in his name. Amen. Jesus then broke the bread and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus then took the cup, a symbol of the new covenant in his blood. Let us pray. Lord God, how wonderful it is to take this opportunity to head into 2022 in remembrance of what Jesus did on that cross. His blood spilled for whosoever will, whosoever will listen to his words and choose to follow him. This universe seems to be so complex, so much we don't understand. We barely understand our own time and dimensions. And you provided a way, a simple way, for us to be in relationship with you, Lord God. But it took the blood of Jesus being spilled on that cross. That had to happen first. As Jesus then conquered death. And as he t taught whoever would listen to him to come and follow him. That is what we choose to do, Lord God. Follow Jesus. Forever thankful that he was willing to follow and be obedient to your will. Thank you, Lord God, for the gift of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Jesus then said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection until he comes again. Amen and hallelujah. This is holy ground We're standing on holy ground For the Lord is here And where He is is holy This is holy ground We're standing on holy ground for the Lord is here and where he is is holy these are holy hands we're lifting up holy hands for the Lord is here and where he is is holy these are holy hands we're lifting up holy hands for the Lord is here and where he is is Oh, oh, oh. 